at a fork of the river Kawashima. There was a great water dragon which harassed the people. Now, when travelers passed that place on their journey, they were afflicted by its poison, so that many died. Hereupon, Agatamori, a man of fierce temper and great bodily strength, stood over the pool of the river fork and flung into the water three whole gourds, saying, Thou art continually belching up poison, and therewithal plaguing travelers. I will kill thee, thou water dragon. If thou canst sink these gourds, then I will take myself away. But if thou canst not sink them, then I will cut up thy body. Now the water dragon tried to draw down the gourds, but the gourds would not sink. So, with upraised sword, Agatamori entered the water and slew the water dragon. He further sought out the water dragon's fellows. Now the tribe of all the water dragons filled a cave in the bottom of the pool. Agatamori slew them all, and the water of the river became changed to blood. Therefore, that water was called the Pool of Agatamori. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And today we are excited to bring to you another guest expert. Our expert today is Laura Neufer, who is a professor at Colby College, an expert in East Asian studies, particularly in medieval and Renaissance Japan. And Laura has written on interspecies romance in, in medieval and early modern Japan and is willing to talk to us today about East Asian dragons. We have already talked a little bit about the European dragons in an episode, and we realized that dragons are widespread and that there are plenty of medieval and early modern dragons in other places as well. So that's our topic for today, and we're super excited to hear especially how different dragons are in Japan and, and the rest of East Asia. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here, and I'm just so excited to join this conversation and hopefully learn more from you about the Western dragon, which I really only know in a kind of casual, popular, cultural sense. Well, this was a fantastic little episode that you read for us. Can you tell us a little bit about where that comes from and what the sort of cultural context is of, of that story? Absolutely. So this is one of the two early mythological chronicles that were produced under the patronage of the imperial court in the early 8th century. And prior to this, you don't have any sustained book-length narratives. So these two texts, which are Kojiki, A Record of Ancient Matters, and then what I read from Nihon Shoki, a Chronicle, The Chronicles of Japan, are really a landmark in the textual history of Japan. And I, I admit that I read this and I translated uh, dragon, or what I read as water dragon, the word is actually mizuchi, which is not quite the, the most standard word for dragon is ryu. And so the mizuchi in this story is one of a kind of constellation of dragon-like entities 
that you don't necessarily have a good analog for in English. Although I think to a same, some extent the same thing is true in English, like you've got your dragons, but you also have your wyverns and your lindworms and your, your hydras and, and whatnot. And so from the earliest Japanese myth, and then from myth you go into legend and fairy tale, and of course there's all a very... There's a, lot, a gradient among those and no clear and hard boundaries. But running through all of that, you do have kind of two threads of narratives about dragons and dragon-adjacent beasts. And one is re represented by what I just read, which is the dragon or dragon-like beast as something that presents a danger and must be conquered. Um, and here, this is the story that I just read is of violent you know, military conquest. There are also stories in which dragons are conquered by the power of Buddhist scripture and then become reformed kind of saint-like dragons. Um, and, and then you also have dragons that are more positive from the start, perhaps even sacred or holy. So there's a, an extremely wide just mosaic of dragon lore um, and this is kind of if you look at the chronology this is one of the early starting points so you your translation has it, it's a water dragon and i mm -hmm. i just wondered is that are dragons often sort of divided up uh, kind of elementally right like air water those kinds of uh, divisions if there is any kind of taxonomy at all right is that one is that a very common way of thinking about dragons that they are associated with particular elements. So dragons very often have aquatic associations, and that can be with rivers. It can also be with the ocean. There's a, a kind of separate body of lore surrounding the dragon king of the sea. But you don't have fire dragons. You don't have air dragons. And in fact, the traditional Chinese conception of the elements is not that you have earth, wind, water, fire, uh, but rather that you have earth, metal, wood, uh, fire and air. So I'm interested, though, that this water dragon um, mm -hmm. breathes poison or exudes poison, because that is something that we find actually, before we hear about Western European dragons mm -hmm. breathing fire, we hear about them breathing poison. Yes. And the sort of fumes that come out of its mouth um, are essentially the fumes of hell, mm -hmm. I suppose. So I found that really interesting that there is this kind of connection that yes. may be incidental, but, mm. but the association with poison and serpents, of course, mm. because we have actual poisonous serpents out there. Yes. So this is not unique to this particular text. There are certainly other accounts that you find over the century, centuries of dragons that are in some way poisonous. Either they breathe out poison or they just kind of exude this miasma that then blights everything around them. Uh, but you don't have fire-breathing dragons so much in the East Asian context, although they are often associated with lightning and with thunderstorms. And I think what you said about the poisonous snake is very apt and maybe some of what makes this 
make sense to the people who are hearing these dragon stories because there is a very, if you pardon the pun, slippery boundary between the dragon <laughs> and the snake in the Japanese and the larger East Asian context. And there are poisonous snakes in Japan. So the notion that there is some that were venomous snakes, I ought to say, that they're of a, of a venomous reptile was something that I think held a real kind of common sense reality for people who heard about it. Snakes have a strong negative connotation in lots of places, and certainly poisonous animals generally don't get a lot of positive press. And I wonder whether the East Asian dragon often carries those negative impl implications because the Western dragons are pretty pretty negative. They're associated with the devil frequently and, you know, like rarely a positive figure. And that story you gave us certainly has the dragon as an adversary. Are there dragons that are less problematic as well? Absolutely. There are very many positive dragons. And this is true in China as well, where even today the dragon, this is China now, is seen as a kind of national totem or symbol. And there is a marked preference actually for children who are born in the year of the dragon. That's, that's less true in Japan. I think there is less in modern Japan of a fascination and a focus and identification with the dragon. Uh, but certainly historically in Japan, dragons are actually very common throughout various kinds of Buddhist iconography. There are, there is, for instance, the goddess Benzaiten, who is sort of a Buddhist deity. It's when you look at religious practice in traditional Japan, it's often not really a, a yes-no binary distinction. Is this Buddhist or is this not Buddhist? Uh, but Benzaiten is a goddess with Buddhist associations, and she's a very positive figure. And she rides on a white dragon. Uh, there are eight dragons that are the defenders of the Buddhist faith. So there is not a unilaterally negative vision of dragons. And... If anything, I, I would say that there is perhaps in the balance a, a more positive valuation of dragons than negative, but you certainly do also have a strong tradition of dragons or dragon-adjacent monstrous serpent-like beasts being presented as adversaries. So you have those kinds of two strands of thought, and sometimes they cross over. I mentioned I think earlier, that there are narratives in which a dragon or dragon-like creature is initially presented as an adversary and is then converted to goodness, uh, usually through the power of Buddhist scripture. And so one story about that, this is actually a local story about Benzaiten, which is associated with an island called Enoshima, which is in the, the bay by Tokyo, and you can actually go to this island. And so the story is that there was a five-headed dragon. There are lots of stories involving multiple-headed dragon serpent things, and then the five-headed dragon is uh, wreaking havoc, causing disaster. Then Benzaiten comes along, and Benzaiten is, among other things, this extraordinarily beautiful female goddess, and the dragon falls in love with her. She reforms the dragon to good by preaching the Buddhist scriptures to it, and thereafter the dragon becomes her faithful servant. <laughs> and so... 
which I correct me if I'm probably somewhere you do have some kind of vaguely similar story in Western tradition, but that would seem to me to be more an outlier than a common pattern. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I can think more readily of situations where like a saint, there's a very famous story about this early bishop of Paris, Marcellus of Paris, who there's this woman who's very bad. She's she's an adulteress <laughs> and she dies. And this dragon takes up residence in her tomb and is eating her body. Mm-hmm. And her relatives are all, you know, shocked and horrified by this. So the bishop comes to, you know, deal with the issue. And he, and this is sort of his greatest miracle, is that he invites the dragon out of the tomb and he kind of, rings a peal over it. He reads it a lecture and then he strikes it three times on the head with his bishop's crozier and ties his stole, his ecclesiastical stole around its neck and then leads it on a parade through the streets of Paris so that everybody can see that it's been tamed essentially. And then he sort of shakes his finger at it and says, go back to the desert or the sea and don't bother us anymore. And the dragon's like, oh, yes, sir. Right away, sir. You know, so I wouldn't say it becomes his faithful servant, but it's completely subjugated by his holiness, like his his righteousness. That's about the closest parallel I can find for that in the Western tradition. That is fascinating to me. There are a number of elements there that strike me as having really strong echoes in the Japanese tradition. For instance, there's a story of a girl called Sayokime. And so this is part of a Buddhist storytelling itinerant preaching tradition that takes shape during the late medieval era. So we're going to say something around 16th, 17th century. And so long story short, Sayokime sells herself into slavery to pay for memorial rights to her father. Uh, She is purchased by a village headman who plans to sacrifice her to a dragon. So this is a problematic dragon. Uh, And the, so she accepts her fate and she is put in a platform in the middle of the lake because this dragon, like many dragons, is associated with the elements, particularly of the element of water, and you need to keep your dragon happy or your dragon will bring floods and droughts and such not. So Sayokime is in the middle of the lake about to be eaten by the dragon, which rears its scaly head out of the water, and she has a copy of the Lotus Sutra, which is a a particularly revered Buddhist text, and she starts chanting aloud from the Lotus Sutra, and the dragon listens, and then she takes the Lotus Sutra, and she taps the dragon on the head, and all of the scales fall off, and it turns out that the dragon is itself a transformation of another woman who was sacrificed and out of resentment became this dragon serpent thing. So that's another commonality there. There are a lot of cases in Japan where you have people, men and women, but maybe more commonly women after death, becoming some kind of serpent because of their misconduct, which made me think when you talked about the 
adulterous woman, the dragon in her tomb. You know, reincarnation is not really part of the Christian tradition, but you, you do kind of wonder, is that is the dragon somehow related to her misconduct? Uh, so then, but this dragon that has now been changed into this girl turns out to be the dragon daughter or dragon girl who is this sacred figure, this very holy figure. And she gives Sayohime, the, the girl who is about to be sacrificed, the dragon girl gives to her this magic wish-granting jewel. And it's this sudden reversal where the dragon goes from being this utterly menacing creature to this actual holy incarnation. And the pivot for that is, again, the, the tap on the head with this sacred relic. That's a fantastic story. And it, it seems almost sort of Netflix ready. I mean, I think it's a amazing dramatic story. And the idea of the human, of the dragon becoming human or the human that has been made into a dragon or like vice versa. I wonder in our last episode on dragons, which I encourage listeners to take a listen to, we talked about this kind of fantasy idea, current fantasy idea that dragons can have human form or you know, might might be able to shift back and forth or or that a human could be turned into a dragon or vice versa, which appears in a lot of modern fantasy literature, but we were having trouble finding anything in the European background for it. So we hypothesized in that episode that this might be something that comes from some of the Eastern dragon lore. So is it common to find dragons that have a human avatar or appearance or that are being transformed back and forth? It is at least somewhat common. It is certainly not unheard of. And I think that in some ways relates to the Buddhist notion that species is not entirely fixed. Uh, you are reborn as one thing or another thing. So over the course of a soul's transmigration, it goes through many forms. And I think that notion then gives a, a kind of framework to other narratives where the, the form of a particular entity is subject to change. And there are definitely stories, well, there are stories in which dragons alternate between the, the big dragon form, and then they, they can also be tiny little snakes. And I mentioned just a moment ago, the figure of the dragon girl, uh, who lives in the undersea palace, although that's kind of a later conflation, but she is both a dragon and a girl. And she is a, a major figure, actually, in the Lotus Sutra, which is a, a really central sacred text in Mahayana Buddhism, which is what's prevalent in East Asia, so China, Korea, Japan. Um, so I don't know that you can draw a direct genetic link between that and then fantasy dragons that shift form that seems like that might be more rooted in the the general concept of the shapeshifter the the werewolf and then that expands to wear panthers wear coyotes and why not a wear dragon um, but yes so the dragons in east asia and in japan are of changeable form at least in many instances and one of the possible forms is human i'm really interested laura by this idea that you you just mentioned that in Buddhism, the concept of species or the concept of sort mm -hmm. of like the stable status of the mm -hmm. body is, is not 
it's it's not stable. It's yes. it's, it's fluid. Could you talk a little bit more about that in terms maybe more broadly than dragons, what that means for the conception of what it means to be human versus what it means not to be human? Yes. So I think one thing to keep in mind there is there is the ideology, the the Buddhist tenets and teachings and what one notionally believes. And then there's the lived experience. And I don't know that the Buddhist ideas surrounding animals fully translated into practice. For instance, you have a, a strict prohibition against the eating of meat. And certainly in Japan, you see historically more concern about eating meat and more attempts to have a at least semi-vegetarian diet historically, uh, not in present day Japan. Uh, but compared to the European context, I believe there is a greater taboo around eating meat in Japan historically. Um, and yet people ate meat. So that is my example of the ways in which people believed one thing about animals and yet did another. But to answer your question about the fluidity of species, the, the very sort of basic nuts and bolts Buddhist teaching is that there are six realms of existence, the lowest being hell dwellers. Uh, the realm above that is hungry ghosts. That's not so great either. The realm above that is animals. Uh, that's a little bit better. And then above animals, you have warring titans, warring titans up the next rung up the ladder is humans. And then above humans is the gods. Uh, but the humans are kind of the sweet spot. The belief is that a human form is a, a wonderful opportunity to gain enlightenment and something that should not be squandered. But it is also something that can be easily lost, particularly in these evangelical tales that you see from medieval Japan. And in the case of humans transforming spontaneously into animals, it's usually not dragons, uh, because dragons do have this connotation of power, and there there is something mystical and positive about them, whereas the animal transformation is typically a punishment. Uh, on the other hand, you have just reams and reams and reams of stories about people spontaneously transforming into snakes. Uh, and some of these are what you would see as genuinely sinful behavior. For instance, there is a story about a man who lusts madly after his daughter-in-law, and then boom, he's a snake. Uh, so don't don't lust wildly after your daughter-in-law. Um, there's a story. Uh, about a monk who has a secret hoard of gold. This is especially sinful if you're a monk, you're supposed to renounce worldly possessions and desires. And so after his death, his disciples open the door to his room and see a snake coiled atop this hoard of gold. And then you have these kind of, of baffling stories where what seems like a really fairly innocent desire is still enough of a sinful attachment to the material world that it results in this snake transformation. Uh, so there's one story uh, from a, a collection of stories, Ujishui Monogatari, in which a young woman has a tree, um, a fly, I believe it, I believe it is a plum tree that she loves so much that she gazes upon this plum tree with just a sort of devotion. And then she dies young and then her bones turn to snakes after she dies because she was so fixated on this tree. So any kind of attachment to the world is a potentially snakeifying sin. It sounds dangerously uh, common. 
as an occurrence. Yes, it, it's a, a wonder that we haven't all turned into snakes, if that's the, the threshold is liking your plum tree. Um, but it is, so the snake does serve as this kind of caution against all kinds of misbehavior related to attachment, more so really than any other animal. Although you can also, you can turn into an ox, you can turn into a deer, all kinds of animal reincarnations await if you are not good. I mean, I guess I would say that in the medieval and Renaissance traditions that we looked at in Europe in our previous episode on dragons, we talked a lot about the problem of distinguishing snakes from dragons, that there are certain kinds of dragons in Western folklore, and particularly in northern, northwestern European folklore, British Isles folklore, that are described as worms with a Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they are snakes. I mean, they're just like big. Maybe they're eels. I'm not sure. They're they're big, scaly, limbless creatures and land dwelling, typically, though not always. So, is there a similar kind of gradient between dragon and snake in the Eastern tradition? Absolutely. There is a gradient is one term, but I think it might even be something murkier than that. I mentioned a little while ago that dragons in their shape-shifting may sometimes become little snakes. So that story is interesting in that it positions the snake as an, an alter ego of the dragon. So they're, they're not the same thing, and yet they are also the same thing. Uh, there are a lot of stories about snakes. These are folkloric stories that have a a fantastical element where the snake seeks a human bride. And then in some variants, the snake is swapped out for a dragon. For instance, if you go way, way back to ancient mythology, so 8th century, there is a story about uh, a god named Susano defeating what is described as an eight-headed serpent, and it's the size of several valleys. So obviously not describing any naturally existing creature. And you encounter something like that, and you say, well, is that a snake? Is that a dragon? But it is it is described as being an, an Orochi, a like serpent-type figure. Uh, but there is a, a real fluctuation and lack of clear distinction between snakes and dragons. And there's actually a term, Ryuja, uh, which combines the two, so snakes and dragons. So they're, they're seen as kin enough that they get collapsed into this compound term, and yet they're still not quite kind, or there would just be one word for them. So it's a, a kind of snake-tongue relationship, two and yet one. I want to call you back to that story you mentioned um, with the dragon girl who and the jewel that she gives, because <laughs> it, it occurs to me that, uh, again, and this is looking back to our, our uh, episode on European uh, dragon lore, that dragons were a source of special jewels, whether those were from somewhere inside their head or whether they were their eyes. We, we notice that, and it's something that, that becomes part of kind of the natural history of dragons in the early modern European tradition. But are, are jewels, do jewels crop up frequently in dragon stories? 
So jewels crop up frequently in dragon stories in the specific form of the wish-granting jewel, which is rooted in Buddhist mythology or Buddhist lore and is also associated with the goddess or more technically Bodhisattva Kannon, who can give you a wish-granting jewel. And the the wish-granting jewel does exactly what you, you think it does. It it grants wishes or it brings good fortune. Uh, So dragons are associated with jewels in that one very specific and yet powerful sense, you know, but it stirs the imagination who doesn't want a wish-granting jewel. I want a wish-granting jewel. Uh, But they're not associated so much with jewels in the sense of having a hoard of rubies and diamonds and and whatnot. Uh, they, They just have this one kind of magical stone. And when you see this jewel depicted in art, it looks more like a kind of orb with a little swirl on top. So it's not what you would think of as being a gemstone. There's a story or a a piece of folklore, I suppose you could say, that crops up on maps sometimes. There's a, a 1450 world map by a Franciscan friar named Framoro. And the Framoro map has Sort of somewhere in the region of Herat in Afghanistan, it mm-hmm. has a notation that says here in the mountains, there are dragons that have a stone in their forehead that cures many infirmities. So first of all, these are you know Central Asian dragons. And second of all, it, I, I suppose curing of illness is similar to a wish granting function mm-hmm. there. Do you ever see that? Like the idea of a, the stone being almost sort of physically part of the dragon body or? No, I don't believe so. It is something that the dragon can hand over, although, and this then ties back to what we were saying earlier about the lack of a hard and fast distinction between snakes and dragons, um, is that there is this line of folklore. This is a very widely distributed tale and you can trace it back into ancient myth about a man who marries a woman. Uh, and as, as happens with our spouses, she turns out to be a snake. Uh, and so she, <laughs> she departs um, eventually. She, he violates a taboo. She tells him not to look while she is giving birth and he looks and sees that she's a snake and that's the end of the marriage. Uh, But before she goes, she plucks out her eyeball and gives it to the man. And the eyeball is then something that can be used in place of her breast. The baby can suck on her eyeball. Uh, But there, and so you say, well, what does that have to do with a gem? But there is a a kind of variation of that story where this is a a male protagonist who is involved with a snake and the snake plucks out its eye and the eye becomes a wish-granting gem. So that's the, the one instance I am aware of is this narrative where a snake plucks out the eye and the eye becomes a wish-granting gem. And that is in some way related to, I, I posit it's related, and I, I believe other scholars would agree, to this body of folklore in which the snake wife plucks out her eye and it becomes this magic milk-producing object. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't... Oh, 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 actually, now that you say this is not a gem, however, 
uh, finding exciting things inside dragons. I, I do have a story about that. And so this is one of these really ancient myths that continues to have tremendous sway over the Japanese imagination. Any Japanese person would know this story, at least in its outline, which is, and I mentioned it before, Susanoo, who is a mischievous or even malicious god in heaven, gets himself kicked out of heaven. And when he descends to earth, he has a, a bit of a character change and shifts into the hero's role and he defeats this massive eight-headed serpent and as he is cutting the serpent open he feels his sword banging against something inside the the giant eight-headed serpent that he has just killed uh so he cuts it open and he finds inside a better sword than his own sword and this is the sword that then goes on to become the imperial, one of the three imperial regalia, uh, Kusanagi. And so the story is that having found the sword inside the snake, Susanoo, who is now reformed, uh, goes back to heaven where he had misbehaved so dreadfully and hands over the sword as a sign of his obeisance. So you do sometimes find swords in dragons. Um, and that really embedded inside the body such that you need to cut it out. Mm-hmm. Well, that is like everything you need for an HBO series, fantasy yeah, it, series. It, it really it does. Swords, dragons. Adaptation. And I, it has been adapted in various movies, uh, in television shows that you know there at least within japan just the way that you know greco-roman myths and arthurian legends become this very fertile source of popular entertainment uh the the japanese mythology is also drawn upon and reimagined and re-reimagined kind of endlessly mm-hmm. So you've mentioned a number of times the sort of Buddhist context for a lot of these dragon stories. This folklore tradition, though, does that go back beyond the sort of arrival of Buddhism in Japan? Is that part of a an older, specifically Japanese tradition? Is it a more Pan-Asian tradition? So that is an excellent question with a complicated answer that I'll try to keep brief. All of our textual records from Japan post-date the arrival of Buddhism. So any speculation about pre-Buddhist religion is highly speculative, as is you know speculation about any kind of pre-Buddhist narrative. And it is there is a, a temptation to always try to disentangle what is Buddhist versus what is not Buddhist. And this is something that the Japanese themselves have struggled with over the ages. Uh, but it, it is, in the end, it's kind of a fool's errand. Although it is the case that you can look at something and say, this is really a text that is centrally concerned with Buddhist questions and all of the answers are located in Buddhism. And other things you can say, well, this was formed in an environment where Buddhism was a really important part of the culture, but it's not necessarily centrally about Buddhism. So there certainly are dragon um, narratives that are more or less concerned with Buddhism in as much as the dragon has Buddhist connotations. It is 
part of Buddhist iconography, even though if you look at the long history of the dragon in continental Asia, the dragon did not originate within Buddhism, but it became co-opted into Buddhism or, or found a home for itself in Buddhism pretty early on. Uh, so one fascinating possibility that really raises more questions than it answers, but is worth mentioning here, is pottery from what is called the Jomon era. Uh, so the Jomon is a very long period. It's about 16,000 years long. So you say that that's not a single culture that, that spans all kinds of cultural change. Uh, but we look at some pottery from the Jomon period in some areas, and you do see something that appears to be kind of dragon-like. You particularly find these sort of horned serpents in the later Jomon period pottery up in what is sort of the northeastern part of, of Honshu. And so there may have been some kind of pre-Buddhist or native Japanese dragon, but it's so hard to say. Japan, even though you look at it on a map and you say, well, that's an island, it seems like it should be cut off. It's not far enough out in the reaches of nowhere that it was ever really just quarantined or sequestered unto itself. It's always part of these larger circulations of culture, art, narrative, and fantastic animals. <laughs> are there are there distinct changes between, uh, you know, say the uh, 14th century and the 16th century going on in the way that there is um, on the European side, there are sort of major changes in the way that these creatures are being represented uh, or is it more consistent up through the end of the early modern period? Um, so there are between the 14th and the 16th century or in Japan, sort of right around the year 1600 is a real dividing line. It's a change of regime. And although the, the emperor is still the emperor, but the emperor throughout most of Japanese history is not the real center of power. Um, so post-1600, you have the rapid emergence of an urban mercantile culture. Uh, you have just this burgeoning woodblock print press, which leads to rising literacy. And this, of course, as you imagine, means the production of all kinds of new stories and also new illustrations. Illustration is a, a big part of the early Japanese printing. I'm not aware of any radical reimagination of dragons that happens as part of this cultural shift. Although I, I'm actually very curious, what is the, the, the transformation in dragons that happens over that time frame in Europe? Well, I I'm referring mainly to the emergence of uh, kind of natural philosophy and the attempt to put mm -hmm. dragons into an emerging idea of natural history, which I think, you know, the, the kind of cultural transfer that we talked about with the, with the idea of the jewel or the valuable inside of the dragon for the West uh, becomes very quickly a sort of practical natural history thing. Well, you know, find a dragon, you know, take, capture the dragon, <laughs> kill the dragon, remove, you know, the thing that all dragons have that will cure diseases. That's a, that's a very kind of practical natural history approach to, to dragons, very different from the, the mm -hmm. uh, say, the bestiaries of the Middle Ages. 
Yeah. Although you would think that approach would then run into trouble when you go out to find your dragon and, and there's no dragon to be had. <laughs> uh, but so there is particularly more in the 18th century, you do see a kind of proto-natural history in Japan. And this is something that draws heavily on Chinese sources. Uh, one, for instance, there's a Japanese encyclopedia completed in 1713 by somebody named Terajima Doan. Uh, it's called Wakansan Saizue, which is like Chinese, illustrated Japanese and Chinese um pictures of the three realms. And so this is organized into sections on dress and culture and implements, uh, but there is a, a large part of it that is dedicated to animals. And one of those sections is dedicated to what we would now call reptiles, although the word reptile does not exist in Japanese at this point. And, but there is a section on, on the scaly things, really. And in the in the scaly things section, you have what are clearly natural snakes and lizards and things that just exist in the ordinary world. But then right alongside them, you do have dragons and you have other sorts of fantastic dragon adjacent beasts. Like just as in Europe, you have your worms and your wyverns and your dracontipedes. Uh, in, in Japan, you also have a host of uh, sort of dragon-like lesser-known animals. Um, and the um, this encyclopedia does not seem troubled by the what seems to us apparent mingling of fantasy and reality. It's just all taken, you know, these are, here's your, here's your book on scaly beasts, enjoy. I mean, that is very, that's, that's also common in, uh, in the material that we've looked at on the European side. Yeah. And there's, I'm not aware of any suggestions on how to go about and profit by slaying a dragon and getting the jewel. You, you don't get the wish granting jewel by slaying the dragon. You, you get the wish granting jewel by winning the dragon's favor and the finding of the sword inside the serpent's tail is kind of a, a one-off heroic action, although you do see sort of echoes of that in other stories, other lesser heroes doing, you know, achieving similar feats. Uh, but it's not something that your ordinary person could go out and, you know, I want a, a fine sword, I'll kill a dragon, in the same way that you would go out and kill a, a deer for meat. So I want to sort of turn back to the story you related about the wife who turns into a snake, mm -hmm. which might be a sort of dragon adjacent mm -hmm. snake. Oh, yes. Um, that really reminds me of a Western medieval story about a fairy named Melusine, mm. also a wife who's secretly a serpent, also a wife who's placed this restriction on her husband, never never watch me in the bath because that's when she turns into a snake um, and who also has to leave after her husband breaks that, that um, particular rule. I guess this raises for me really interesting issues about dragons and dragon-like creatures and gender mm -hmm. and specifically the kind of instability of the female gender. And I wondered if that's, 
something you could talk about in relation to these Japanese dragons and serpents? Yes. So a lot of scholars have also noticed what you've noticed, this fascinating seeming commonality between the the Melusine legend or myth in the European context and then the snake wife in the Japanese context. Uh, The snake wife is actually one of several animal wives who have broadly the same kind of modus operandi. They appear to a human man uh, usually after he has done some good deed. So he actually triggers the sequence of events. And they then become his wife and everything is wonderful, but there is a a prohibition against looking. And usually what must not be seen, uh, as with the snake wife and as with the Melusine story, in some way involves the female body and its functions and and nudity. Uh, So that is, there is some kind of, I think, deep core of meaning surrounding that. And then almost inevitably the taboo is violated and the marriage disintegrates. So in this context, the the snake woman is very much a woman. You, With some minor exceptions, as a general rule, you don't see that kind of story pattern with male figures, dragons or otherwise. But you also see contexts where the dragon is either male, either definitively male or kind of not gendered, but in a way where we can probably assume male because in Japan as everywhere, the the, the default is male. So dragons are both masculine and feminine, depending on context. They can be one or the other. And they're somewhat unusual in that sense compared to other kinds of mythic creatures. Um, For instance, you have, as in Europe, you have your swan maidens. You have a very similar group of stories in Japan as well. And your, your swan maiden is always a maiden. There's no swan man. But your your dragons can be male or female, or in some cases, I guess, also just bestial, and therefore not really one or the other in a way that is construed as meaningful. When you say there's not a swan man, I'm reminded powerfully of Matthew Burns' version of Swan, swan Lake, in which mm-hmm. the swans are actually men, and it's the costuming is extremely creepy as a result. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so actually, just because you were interested about the, the snake wife story, I wanted to mention that this is another narrative that has really deep roots in myth. So the earliest surviving written myths in Japan go back to the early 8th century. And at the beginning, I, I read one of them. So it's that these two texts, uh, Kojiki, a record of ancient matters, and the Nihon Shoki Chronicles of Japan. Um, and in these myths, there is a story of um, Hikohohodemi, who goes to the, the bottom of the sea in search of his brother's lost fish hook, as one does. Um, mm-hmm. the, the brother is very upset about the lost fish hook. So he's like, fine, I'll, I'll go to the bottom of the sea and I'll get it back. Um, while he's under the sea, he meets the king of the sea, who then later becomes identified with the dragon palace and the dragon king, although probably that's a, a conflation of 
to originally independent imaginary places. Um, and the king of the sea offers him his daughter. He marries the daughter of the king of the sea, uh, daughter of the king of the sea. They go back to land together and she is going to give birth. And she says, don't look. And he looks and he sees that she is a wani. And you say, well, what is a wani? Uh, what is this horrifying revelation? And this is something that scholars do not know. There is a really healthy debate as to what kind of creature it is that he sees when he looks in the birthing hut uh, and realizes that she is not human. Uh, and one theory is that it is a dragon, uh, because in one of the alternate forms of the myth in these texts, uh, she is named as being a dragon. Um, another version or another reading is that it's some kind of just general sea beast that doesn't necessarily have a, a clear equivalent in terms of real world animals. Uh, some people say crocodile. Uh, which is what wani means in modern Japanese. Some people say it's a shark. Uh, that's a, a surprisingly popular theory, although I, I don't think it's the case. Um, I, I like the fact that they're arguing over what it, quote unquote, really was. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of ontological problem there, but you can take that as shorthand as, you know, they're arguing over when the people wrote this down, what kind of creature did they have in their heads? Right. right. Although it really reminds me when we were uh, doing the research for the first dragon episode that we did, I came across this um, evangelical Christian uh, sort of biblical studies website that had an extended argument for how all of the dragons mentioned in um, the Tanakh in the Old Testament mm -hmm. are, uh, are actually crocodiles giant crocodiles or dinosaurs that actually continue like you know plausible yeah that that those are the two most plausible options according to this particular um theologian who mm -hmm. who had done his scientific research on the ancient fauna of um you know the the eastern mediterranean littoral so Anyhow, it was, it was fascinating to me that this sort of drive to, to ground these folkloric animals or these, these animals that are these beasts that are truly fantastic and are mentioned in these sacred texts to ground them in some kind of like sci scientific yes. explanation, mm -hmm. but for to theological reasons. Yeah, to yeah. fantastify the what is really a mythical narrative, um, and right. there. And so the cryptozoological explanation is, right. of course, no serious scholars embrace this. But sometimes you you will have a, a not so serious scholar say, well, you know, maybe the the wani is actually some kind of you know lost sea crocodilian species uh, that you know survived in the Japanese seas for much later than we believe. Uh, and the, the Loch Ness monster gets that explanation, as exactly. we mentioned. Probably almost every episode, that poor, poor Nessie poor comes up. That, that's the the dark horse theory is that her name is Toyotama Hime. Uh, that the Toyotama Hime, the daughter of the Sea King, she was really the Loch Ness monster, and that was the horrifying secret that he witnessed when he looked in the birthing chamber. Well, you know, the, the emotion is supposed to be horror, right? She says, don't look because, you know, you'll, you're not going to, you'll be horrified by what you see. 
And the audiences or the sort of modern reaction to that is that whatever it is, it's horrifying by virtue of being a scary creature. So we go to sharks, you know, whatever's going to eat us now, sharks or alligators or the things that are still out there that are scary rather than, you know, I mean, the alternate version is anything seriously not human would be pretty horrifying, right? I mean, it could be, you know, half platypus and I would be horrified. (laughs) I didn't realize this when I married you, honey. (laughs) Although in, in that text, the, we don't get, or he does feel horror, but part of the problem is that she is then said to feel shame. Uh, she is ashamed, and she said, you have shamed me. I, I told you not to look. And basically, she goes back to the sea in a huff, uh, leaving her newborn child behind. And this is why there has been no communication between the sea and the land since. You know, it used to be that you could go visit the sea god's palace, uh, but no more, because the man who married the sea god's daughter committed this faux pas of looking at her while she was in labor. Wow, so uh, bad in-law story. Yes. <laughs> Any other questions, Alexa? I mean, my head is full of all of these images now of these these water dragons, these dragons who are sometimes girls and sometimes dragons and sometimes something else. But I have to say that as an enthusiastic reader of fantasy fiction myself. I mean, I'll, I'll just cop to that right now. Um, not all of it, but certain authors. I, yeah, I can't stop thinking that Ursula Le Guin definitely had a familiarity with Japanese dragon lore. Her dragons <laughs> are Japanese, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> because they, they have this kind of wisdom role, but they also have this kind of adversarial the se- role. Yeah, they're adversarial, but they're also sort of secretly feminine and in many cases. <laughs> yes. And I just, one thing that I, I should mention about dragons in the Japanese and then the larger East Asian context is that they tend to be very strongly associated with water. Uh, they have an aquatic aspect, which I think you maybe you probably see sometimes in European dragons, but I, I think not as strongly and consistently as you do in the yeah. Asian, East Asian dragons. Um, and they're imagined as the controllers of the rain. So in early Japanese Buddhism, for instance, there were frequent rituals to appease, propitiate, however you, you want to put it, um, earn the favor of the the dragon kings of heaven in order to gain rain uh, because rain is extremely important if you're a rice growing country uh, you, you need your rice patties filled yes yeah in some future episode when we talk to a specialist in pre-columbian dragons mm-hmm. we um will we'll return to this theme this association between dragons and rain because uh the dragon is obviously a sort of Western term that we're applying here to, to Asian creatures, but, um, but the, uh, the dragon-like creatures from Maya mythology, for example, um, yeah. are, are rain dragons or storm mm. dragons. So yeah, that's, that's a continual, or I should say that's a connecting thread across cultures, although obviously not yeah. 
not. There's no causality there. <laughs> yeah, although the point that you brought up is something that I've returned to or picked at in my own head a couple of times, which is when we describe these East Asian dragons as dragons, is that a, a misapplication of the term? And then that goes back to Ian's point about the, the scholars frantically debating the real identity of a fictional creature. Um, you know, does it even matter? Can you, you say, oh, these are not really the same kind of creature when they're not real in the first place? But I have wondered, does this term, does the application of the term dragon to these Japanese creatures have full validity or less than total validity? Um, and I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a question of how much, how, what kind of confusions might arise from using a term like dragon, you know, in a kind of a, tra in a, in a translating space, I guess. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Since dragons, as we know, are, you know, in any tradition, imaginary concatenations of various attributes mm -hmm. that, that we debate and, and discuss, but. Yeah. And unless you go the cryptozoological route. Um, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then you would have a whole phylogenetic problem on your hands. You know, how do you, how do you create a, a clod for the, the dragon? Yeah. <laughs> Where do they fit in the evolutionary, evolutionary tree? Yeah. Genus Class species. Right, class dragonidae or whatever. <laughs> well, it's been fun. This is, I've learned a lot. Yes, so much. I have yes, a lot so of much. things to think about. Thank you so much for having me. I've also really enjoyed talking about this and I've learned so much from both of you. And I can't wait to read more about the snakes. Yes, that is, I am, I am writing the snakes. So God willing, you will one day read it. Um, <laughs> one day there will be a book. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back to you specifically about the snakes. And, and yes. the, the, there is a creature in the, in the West that we need to do, which is the Lamia, um, oh, which is yeah. often, oh, yeah. a, you know, which is possibly Melusine. So, yeah, which is, yes, Melusine may be a Lamia. Well, all for future episodes, but we're so happy you were able to talk to us and so grateful for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much and best of luck finding more fantastic beasts. <laughs> Under every stone. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Mm -hmm.